Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Turn to Romans chapter 8. The title of today's sermon is Debtors and Destroyers. I have to admit, I mentioned to Lisa yesterday that I feel that uh, as if the, uh, the spirit of the Puritan preachers were kind of influencing me this week because today's sermon um, is, is long. <laughs> it's based on two verses, and it has to do with with the Puritans' favorite topic, the mortification of sin. So you guys are in for a treat today. <laughs> <laughs> Romans chapter 8, starting in verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the last time we were together in Romans 8, our souls were refreshed by some really good news that came to us from the pen of Paul the Apostle. And it was news that uh, by way of being rightly related with Christ Jesus through faith, we enjoy some incredible benefits. And we recited them last time, verses 1 through 11, reminded us of how we are no longer under the condemnation of God as where we are in Christ. We've been fully forgiven. Uh, we've been set free from the operating power of sin and death. No longer are we controlled by sin. Any longer we've been freed from that power. We've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God is with us. God is in us. An incredible truth. We are now the temples of the Holy Spirit. We belong to God. We're his actual property. We're the blood-purchased property of God. No longer the chattel and the slave of Satan. And we've been guaranteed the promise of the resurrection because of the indwelling power of the Spirit. The same power that raised Christ now indwells in every believer that's in this room and in the sound of my voice. Death has no sting or victory over us any longer. It's this last benefit, just for a moment, as a little sidebar, the victory over the grave and the resurrection that um, I think is especially relevant for us, at least at the moment, as we consider the passing uh, of Laurel Shoemaker, you know, having her uh, ceremony yesterday, her celebration of life. Uh, David, uh, excuse me, uh, Lisa and Tim's brothers passing last year. David, he left us. And my mom's passing this past week. It's, it's one of those things that um, it reminds us of the nearness of death in life, doesn't it? Uh, the, the author of Ecclesiastes actually points this out. He says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. You know, you hear that. And the kids are probably thinking, really? Go to a house of mourning? Why would you want to go to a place of mourning where everyone's crying? I'd rather go to a party where it's feasting. But actually, there's great wisdom in that passage because, again, it's God's reminder to us that as, as wonderful as this life is, and as much as we've been given blessings by God through it, by his common grace, all of us have to remember that death is truly only a heartbeat away. It really is. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I at this moment able to genuinely claim the promise of eternal life? 
Am I able to genuinely stand in that blessed assurance that I will be raised to a new life on the last day? But if you've trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you believe that God raised him on the third day from the dead, and if you have submitted your life to his lordship, then you absolutely have that promise for yours, and it's no one can take that from you. And that is the glory of, of the gospel. Death no longer needs to be feared for anyone who holds on to those truths. But if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that does not have that assurance yet, that they still tremble at the thought of death, you can receive that guarantee in a moment simply by repenting of your sin, trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross, and trusting him this day forward as your Lord. That's the beauty of the gospel that we get to share with this world. The beauty, the simplicity, and the glory of the gospel. It's a balm for our souls and an encouragement for our lives. And I hope that each of you, one of you here rests in that because it is a great, great work and news for us. And it's the news that I'll be able to share with those that are going to come visit this week for my mom's wake and, and, and service. For those that don't have that hope, I will share with them the hope that I know my mother had. And that's a balm for all of us. Okay, so after reminding us of these incredible blessings, Paul moves on in his teaching in, verses, in verse 12 by pointing out a truth for every recipient of these blessings. So everyone that has the blessings that we just recited in verses 1 through 11, he points out this truth. In verse 12, he says, So then, brothers, he's speaking to the believing people of Rome, he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So the truth that Paul reminds us here is this. As a result of having received these incredible benefits through our union with Christ, we've been made debtors. Right? We don't often think of ourselves that way, I think, from a Christian perspective. Now, a debtor is simply a person who owes something to someone else. We know that word in our regular economy here in the States, and God uses it in terms of the spiritual economy, if you will. But someone might say, wait a minute, I thought that salvation is a free gift of God. How does a free gift make me a debtor? I mean, if it's free, I shouldn't owe anyone anything, right? It's free. Well, salvation makes us debtors in this way. Not in the sense of needing to pay back the person who has blessed us so generously. We don't pay that one back by putting forth an effort that equals the value of the blessing given to us, like we would in an economic transaction when you buy something, right? You're paying money for something because the person says, this is what this is worth, and you, if you want this, you need to pay for it. That's not the transaction that happens when it comes to salvation. But we become debtors in this way. We fully acknowledge that we had nothing to do at all with earning the benefits that we have been blessed with the ones that we've received. We are indebted in the sense that we gratefully recognize that the benefits of salvation that we received have come to us freely from the hand of a kind and generous benefactor. We see this very same phenomenon at work today in our world, though, don't we? And let me give you an example. In Rochester, Rochester has been uh, blessed 
by the generosity and the prosperity of a man named George Eastman. George Eastman, of course, is the man who started Eastman Kodak Company. And in his wealth, he also gave generously back to the society. He was the one who actually started the Eastman School of Music. He's the one that started the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. And he also is the one who opened the U of R School of Medicine and Dentistry, all for the purpose of benefiting society. It was his gift to Rochester. And he was, it was done in, without the expectation that he would be paid back for that gift. It was out of his philanthropic mindset. He didn't send the city of Rochester an invoice for the expenditures. He spent his fortune for the benefit of the community that he lived in. And as a result, Rochester is, quote unquote, indebted to Mr. Eastman for his generosity and indebtedness that he knows that, it's, it, that, that the city knows it will never be able to pay back nor is it expected to pay back. However, that doesn't mean that there were no ties to those gifts, right? I mean, George Eastman didn't give these gifts and then just simply walked away and says, okay, you can do with it whatever you want. Do it, handle it any way you want to. No. He had a huge say in how those institutions were going to be run. And he made sure that his name was prominently displayed on each one of those places in some manner that everyone knew mm -hmm. this was a gift to the city by George Eastman. And in a sense, that's what Paul's getting at here. Like the city of Rochester, every believer has become the recipient of gifts and blessings that have been freely given to us by a generous benefactor. And that in turn has caused us each to become debtors. The question is, who are we indebted to? Now, for Rochester, that's easy. They're indebted to George Eastman for those things that he gave. But for the believer, Paul answers this question first by approaching it from the negative perspective, right? He tells us who we are not indebted to. And in this case, he tells us in verse 12 that we are not indebted to the flesh. We are debtors not to the flesh, is the way Paul writes it. Now, when the Bible speaks of the flesh, this flesh can be looked at in two different terms. First, on the one hand, it refers to the physical human body, right? This, this flesh, each one of us is equipped with every one of us. That's how we see each other. That's how we know each other. This is how we conduct ourselves in this world, in this physical human body. Jesus says in, uh, in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, he, he uh, approaches the disciples uh, in, the upper, in the room where they're hiding. And he says, see my hands and my feet, touch me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Right? It's that Greek word sarks. That's what it's talking about. So he's talking about his physical body. But on the other hand, the scripture also speaks of the flesh in another term, in another way. It's speaking about our fallen nature, our mere human nature that apart from divine influence is prone to sin and is opposed to God. We looked at that the last time we were in Romans 8. That there's nothing that we can do in the flesh that can please God. And in it's, it's in the second sense, our fallen nature, that Paul is referring to here. And the question is, why would he say this? Why would he take the time to point out that we're not indebted to our fallen nature or even to our flesh when it comes to our salvation? And once again, it's because man in his fallen self-centeredness is still bent on believing that in some way he can earn righteousness and salvation. 
It's part and parcel of who we are. It's part of our fallen nature. Even in our regenerated state, the vestiges of our old nature is still there, and it can cause us to be tempted to believe that we had something to do with the fact that we've been saved by our Lord. I mean, you even hear this in, in proclaimed theology from people that we have high respect for. I mean, even Billy Graham would say, God has done 99%, but there's that 1% that you still have to do. You have to believe, right? That, that's so commonplace within all of us. But it's not to the flesh that we're to be indebted, if you will, with regards to our salvation. And Paul is quick to nip this thought in the bud by reminding us once again that this devilish idea of self-salvation is absolutely wrong and false. And he does so by telling the, us the unvarnished truth. He explains why it is that we are not debtors to the flesh. And it's the second part of verse 13. If you, or in verse 13, he says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. There's nothing that we can do in our own self-effort that will please God. We can think we're living good lives. We can think that we're doing loving and honorable deeds, but if we are doing those things in the power of our fallen flesh, it only will lead to destruction. I mean, that is just the plain, unvarnished truth that Scripture tells us. Proverbs 14.12 makes this clear, right? There is a way that seems right to a man, but what? But its end is the way of death. We might think that what we're doing is good, but it's ultimately going to fail if it's not done in the power of the Holy Spirit, if it's not done in, by way of a life that has been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Non-believers take comfort in the fact that their philanthropy and their goodness is somehow going to be uh, uh, working in their lives in a way that's going to guarantee that they're going to have the heavenly realm when they're all done here. But they have no basis for believing that. And that's also why in the scriptures we have the warning not to love the world or the things that are in the world. Why? John tells us in his first epistle, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And what's the guaranteed end result of the things of the world and its desires? It will all pass away. It's going to disappear. It's going to vanish. It's going to evaporate. It will not last. And it's this truth that prompted Matthew Henry to, say these, to write these words. He wrote, It is in the pleasing, serving, and gratifying of the flesh that is the ruin of men's souls. When that's our focus, that's where mankind is ruined. When all he wants to do is serve himself. Mankind is bent on chasing after that which appears pleasurable for a moment but is ultimately hit with the double whammy of being both fleeting as well as displeasing to God. Remember, the flesh, no matter how generous and caring that it may appear to be, has no regard for the things of the Lord. Its only desire is self-glorification and self-satisfaction, and it's a satisfaction that can never truly be satisfied. Proverbs 30 Verses 15 through 17, I think, give a great word picture of this insatiability of the flesh. Just listen to these words and listen to the word picture that he, that he paints for us here. 
The leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. What's a leech? Leech is like a worm that does nothing but suck blood out of, out of its hosts. And it, it's describing here that the leech is never satisfied. It's constantly wanting, giving, drawing. Then he writes, he says, there are three things that are never satisfied for that never say enough. The grave, right? Is there a day that, that the grave doesn't take in more bodies? No, it's insatiable. It's constantly being filled with the dead. The barren womb, no matter how much you try, the barren womb will not produce anything. And all it does is it wants to try and try again. It's never satiated. The land, which is never satisfied with water. You know, you think of pictures of Death Valley with the, the cracked uh, land going across the, the landscape. And even if it rained, it would not last for a second because the, the land would just dry, soak it right up. And then he finally ends, and fire, which never says enough. I mean, think about a fire. A fire never stops on its own, right? It just consumes until it dies out because it has nothing else to consume. That's the picture of the, of the flesh. We are never satisfied. And we know that ourselves because we go to the store every day. There's always things we want to buy. I mean, we all have we all have a house, and I have a bed, but we want more. We want new sheets. We want new clothes. It just we're never satisfied. And that's just the commentary of God to us, that unvarnished truth about the condition that we live in. And these are the reasons that we are not to pursue the things of the flesh and why we're not indebted to the flesh for the blessings of salvation that we've received. For it's the flesh that is ultimately the cause of our suffering and our damnation rather than our salvation. We don't owe this flesh anything. And we're not to live according to its impulses. All right. So if we're debtors, who are we indebted to? Well, the second half of verse 13 starts to bring revelation to that answer. Let's read verse 13 again. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Living according to the flesh will no doubt lead to death. But there's a wonderful flip side to that coin. If we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, put to death the sinful deeds of the body, it says we will live. And it's by this statement that we see who it is that we are indebted to for the blessings of salvation. We're indebted to our great benefactor and our great helper, the Lord God himself. And that's because it's due to God's electing grace and his immediate presence in our lives that we're able to put to death the unfruitful deeds of the body and enjoy victory in our lives both now and eternally. So remember, it's by his electing grace that God caused us to be made alive spiritually, that God granted us the gift of believing as well as repentance, and he also granted us the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in the newness of life that he actually calls us to. He did it all by his own initiative without us meriting his involvement at all. And so the one that we're truly indebted to for our blessings is God himself. He's the one who richly lavished his grace upon us, that, and he's the one that qualified us to be the recipients of the benefits of salvation. 
So as a result, we owe him a response, right? As with George Eastman, the city of Rochester and the city of Rochester, though, it isn't a response that tries to attempt to repay God for what he's done for us, but rather it's a response that's consistent with the original intent and purpose of the gift, right? Because God saved us for a reason. So it's consistent with the original intent and purpose of the gift, and it's a response that seeks to rightly honor the giver of the gift. And in this case, the proper response to this grace that pleases God is our sanctification. When God saved us, he did not do it with the intent of having us remain in the same broken and dysfunctional state that he found us in. He did it for the purpose of healing and restoring our lives. He did it for the purpose of calling us to labor for the accomplishment of his mission on this earth. And he called, he did this in order for us to bring glory to his holy name. That's what a guy does when he buys a beat up classic car and wants to restore it, right? He doesn't just buy this old beat up Ford, right? This Ford Mustang. And, and lets it sit rotting further in his garage. He doesn't sit there just as a, as a rust bucket, right? He buys it with the purpose of restoring it to its original glory and splendor. Now, this is because the guy loves cars. He loves to see things made new. He wants to restore it and, and, and bring back some of the glory days, maybe. Maybe it's a time that he lived in. And then what's he do? He takes that car after restoring it, and he drives to a place like Carlisle, Pennsylvania every year where they have the big classic car auto show, and he displays it for everyone to come what? By and say, ooh, and ah, and look at that awesome engine, and how'd you get those chrome things to shine like that? I mean, all of that, right? That's, that's the whole glory that he relishes in. That's, that's essentially what's happening in the idea in terms of that restoration of ourselves by way of sanctification. God begins the process of restoring us to the pristine pre-fall condition that he intended for mankind, where our appearance is not marred and scarred by the fall, by sin, but rather it's a perfect reflection of the image of God that we were originally created in. Just as Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, that's according to Hebrews 1, right? God is at work restoring us in that same way. Because we are called to be what? The image of Christ in this world. And he's doing it here and now by way of the process of sanctification. But here's the kicker. The sanctified life isn't something that just happens to us. Anymore that that car is restored by looking at it and letting it sit in your garage without touching it. It's not like we do when we want to get a nice tan. We lie passively on the beach and just let the sun just bake us until we're at the right golden tone that we want. That's a very passive approach, right? That's not the picture of what sanctification is all about. It's not a let go and let God direct it. Notice what 13 says, what verse 13 says. If by the spirit you put to death, the deeds of the flesh, you will live. God has enabled 
you to do this putting to death thing. By giving you the new birth and by empowering you with the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. At one time you couldn't do these things. You were unable to. But now you can. Therefore you're called to actively put to death the sinful deeds of the body by way of the power of the Spirit. And again, I'll quote Matthew Henry. He says, we cannot put down all fleshly lusts and affections without the Spirit working in us. And the Spirit will not do it without our doing our endeavor. We've said this before. Sanctification is truly a cooperative work with the Lord. It is synergistic. We are involved in it actively. We've been saved and been made recipients of God's blessings for a purpose. And our mandate is not to somehow strive to pay God back, which we could never do, right? But rather to respond with a life that seeks to honor our benefactor and to fulfill his will and his purposes. And we see this replete throughout scripture, but I'll just give us a couple to look at that remind us of these truths. The first is just Ephesians 4.1, where he says, I therefore... Paul's writing, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. He's, he's calls us to a higher standard. He's calling us to a new life that reflects the glory of what he's done for us. It's clearly intended that we are not to remain the same as recipients of these incredible blessings. He says later in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And it's corrupt, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And then what? He says, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, it's a call to active work in our lives for what God has done for us. Put off and put on. Well, one of the ones that I think encapsulates it really nicely is in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'll just have you turn there briefly. We'll look at it together. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. And here, in a similar context, Peter is writing to believers and giving them a rationale of, of what their lives should look like and why it should look this way as a result of being recipients of the gospel. So 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9, he writes to the believers, he says, But you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here's the response. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see, that your, good, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there, in this little passage, he's pointing out a couple of different things. First, he's making, he's reminding them of who they are now in Christ, right? They're part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. So he's, he's separating them so that they know that they are distinct from the world. 
And then now as God's people, what are they to do? Well, they're to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the things that wage war on their soul, and they're to conduct themselves honorably before the Gentiles. That all speaks of the transformed life, something that is different about them before everyone else. So let's turn back to Romans. So these passages and more as you travel through the New Testament unequivocally show that the sanctified life is the response we're called to by God and the work we're to be investing ourselves in on a daily basis. Now regarding this whole aspect where he says you will live, right? In Romans 13, 8, 13, that if you put to death the deeds of the flesh, he says you will live. That whole idea of living or life is talking about vitality and victory, which are the opposite of what Paul writes and tells us that a life lived after the flesh looks like. Because what's the end result of a life lived after the flesh? It's death. Whereas the opposite is true in a life that is consecrated unto God. It's a life that is vib it's vibrant and it's filled with victory over sin. And then notice, too, the language of this verse in verse 13. It's very strong in this sense. It doesn't say to ignore the deeds of the body. It doesn't say to accommodate the deeds of the body. It doesn't say to negotiate with the deeds of the body. It doesn't say to have patience with the deeds of the body. It says, put to death the deeds of the body. The Greek word there for death means death. There's no nuance here. There's no little hidden meaning behind it. It means to kill it. It means to put it to death. We're to wage a holy war upon the things in our lives, the desires and the deeds of our flesh, and we're to do so with the goal of destroying them fully. That should be our attitude regarding these things. We are to hate the works of the flesh with a passion that desires their extinction. And we're to work daily with a, commit, with a committed effort that brings that extinction to pass in every possible way we can. Why is that? If for no other reason to remember that it's our sin is, is the reason that, the, that Jesus hung on the cross. If we love our Savior and we see what was done to him, Shouldn't we hate that very thing that put him there, which is the sin that we're all that we have all perpetrated? I mean, if we begin to see those deeds, those things that we know are of an affront to God's holiness in our own lives that we that would stir up a, a passion within us to want to eradicate them or do the very best that we can by the power of the spirit to put them out of our lives. Notice also that the focus is on us. Not on the world. He's not saying go out and put the world's deeds to death. He's calling all of us to look at ourselves and say, put the deeds, you put the deeds of the body to death. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And that's an absolutely consistent theme throughout the New Testament. Okay. Enough beating there, right? So how do we do this? Where do we begin? We start by understanding that because this is a war, there are two territories that we have to gain full operating control over. Our thoughts and our desires and our habits and our environment. 
first we have to understand that what we think about and how and 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 allow to influence is us is the seedbed of our actions and our attitudes. We've talked about this before. Nothing in this world happens randomly or by chance. Everything, every action and attitude always finds their genesis in the form of a preceding thought or idea. We know this from the book of James, right? He wrote this in chapter one. He reminds us, he says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now notice, the temptation to sin begins what? As a result of desire. What's desire? Desire is a thought. It's going on in the mind, in the heart. That's how it manifests itself. And if the thought isn't resisted, sin ultimately results. And, you know, Jesus painted this picture, this reality in graphic terms for us uh, in Mark chapter 7. So I'll have you turn there. Again, I like these word pictures because they, uh, they, they stick with you. At least they stick with me. Now, the challenge is making sure that stickiness does an actual changing effect in my life. You know, being obedient to it. But starting in verse 14 of Mark chapter 7. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So the people in Jesus' day were fixed on externals, right? Due to the Pharisees' influence, they were worried about what they ate, because if they ate the wrong thing, they were going to be ceremonially defiled. So that was their focus. They was focused on, on the eating thing. But Jesus sets the record straight. It isn't what you eat that causes defilement. It's caused by your fallen heart, for it's in that realm that the seed of sin resides. And because our hearts are fallen and prone to the desire of the world's sinful delicacies, we have to do everything we can to guard our hearts and to clean it and to fill it with God's sanctifying truth. Proverbs 25, 28 gives us this word picture. It says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. I like that picture, that that proverb is a word picture for our hearts and our minds, right? When we have no discipline over our minds and our hearts, then anything can enter into it. 
Back in the day, in this time frame, cities were protected by external walls that kept the marauders and the, and the enemies from being able to enter the, the city and destroy it. And yet here in, in this world, we are told to be open. You may have to be open-minded. But open-mindedness leads nothing to nothing but destruction. No, we need to be very careful about what we allow to go into our minds and our hearts because it does truly impact the way we see the world and the decisions that we make in our lives. That's why Proverbs 4.23 gives us this exhortation. It says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. That whole idea of keeping your heart with all diligence means to guard it, to protect it, to watch over it with a serious and committed effort, not to be nonchalant. We have to be intentional if we want to have success in this area of sanctification. And having success in sanctification is a noble goal. It is something that we should all aspire to. Colossians 3 even says this even more pointedly for us. Paul tells us, he says, if you have been raised with Christ, everyone here who has trusted in Christ, that's, that's speaking to you. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. Why? Because the things of this earth have a corrupting effect on us. Now, admittedly, this is not our natural tendency, right? We want to indulge in thinking about earthly things because it's easy and it's pleasurable. That's why we have to be purposeful in our effort to set our minds on high, on the things that God has given us in his word. Each of us have to examine where it is that we spend our time trafficking. What are we being influenced by? Again, I, I've done a litany like this before, but again, it's, it's one of these things that it's worth always considering. What is it that we're listening to? What are we reading? What are we watching? What are the worldviews that we're allowing to influence us? What kind of products and experiences are we being enticed to seek after? Because the world says it's a good thing. How does my daily screen time compare with my devotional time? And, and then look at, at the effect that it's having on our lives. Am I becoming bitter, more angry? Am I becoming harsh and snarky? Am I becoming vengeful? Am I looking more and more like the world because of its impact on me? Or am I seeing the sanctifying effect, seeing more and more of the fruit of the Spirit truly being shown in our lives? Am I brokenhearted over those that are lost? Or do I see them as enemies that I can't wait to destroy? You know, do I have a merciful or in a, in a forgiving spirit about me? Because I've been merciful, been, been shown mercy and been forgiven. I mean, these are the kind of things that this is the, this is the tangible kind of a fruit that we should be looking for in our lives to see what are we being transformed by? The world's ways or are we truly looking for God's word to transform us into his ways, into the image of his son? <clears throat> If we want to succeed at putting to death the deeds of the flesh and mortifying sinful desires, then we have to examine our lives. We have to cut out those things that are feeding our fleshly impulses, and we need to replace them with the life-giving and sin-killing Word of God, because that's what God's Word does. It kills that 
that desire for sin because it puts us in God's mindset. And we all want to please our Lord and our Savior. And notice it's the Word of God. So, so it says that we're to do this by the power of the Spirit. But it's not like we're waiting for some mystical feeling to happen to us in order to have this victory. We're not waiting for this, this, this rush, this infilling that somehow happened at Pentecost and thinking that that's to be uh, copied in every moment of our lives so that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The fact is, by God's testimony, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have the dynamic power of that day where the Lord came and filled his church. We are, it's already existing within us. And he's given us his word, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, right? We have it at our disposal. And this is how we are to this is how we are to be led by the Spirit in putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It is a reliance on his word for our guide. And then secondly, after dealing with the issues of the mind and the heart. In our effort to put to death the, de the, the, the deeds of the flesh, we have to gain control over the territory of our habits and our environment. Now, we're creatures of habit, and we tend to do the same kind of things over and over again, right? At least I know that's, that's how I am. I'm wired that way. I mean, you could, if you watched me for a day, you would know exactly what I do, what time of day I'm doing it, and all this stuff. Lisa's laughing. She knows exactly that. That's my husband. That's, that's what he's going to be there right now. And that in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, habits and venues that are beneficial to us, that cause us to flourish, they're good things, and we should continue in those things. But if your habits and your wanderings are likely to corrupt and cause you to compromise your walk, then you need to deal with them decisively and make the necessary changes to remove their influence from your life. Remember, we're waging a war, and we're not to give any quarter to the enemy. Amen. That that's how seriously we need to be taking this issue of sin. We are to give it no quarter. Jesus made that very clear in Mark chapter 9. You guys are all familiar with this. But he said what? He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, lop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better to enter God's kingdom maimed, lame, and blind than to be destroyed by sin and thrown into hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched. I mean, striking words from our Savior, from the meek and mild Jesus who was walking the shores, right? And everyone flocks to, and he was kind and generous to everyone, which is absolutely true. But he was also kind and generous to everyone in proclaiming the truth about how we are to deal with sin and the seriousness that it needs to be conducted with. So with this, Jesus instructs us to put to death the deeds of the flesh with action that's bold and decisive. Don't trifle with it. Just cut it out of your life. So the guys, if you're tempted to or are currently involved in looking at porn or anything that is sensual or anything visually enticing like that, it needs to be cut off. It has no place in our lives. It's a gateway to perdition. It truly is. This country is being destroyed by pornography. And, and, and our officials won't even deal with it. And it's horrific. And the church often doesn't speak about it. But it's one of those things that is underlying. And the, and the insidious thing about it is it's so secret in the way that it destroys lives. 
If greed and covetousness are causing you to overspend and be in debt to such an extent that you're, you're drowning, he says you need to cut the credit cards. I mean, do really practical, straightforward things that say, no, enough's enough. If whatever your hobby might be is keeping you from serious devotion time with the Lord and fellowship with his people, then you need to put an end to it. It needs to be done simply and straightforwardly cut off, just as Jesus tells us here. And then with a teaching that complements this, Paul instructs believers to have victory over their deeds of the flesh by exhorting them to keep their distance from them, right? So we read this in, in Romans chapter 6, but I'll recite it to you again in verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Okay, so there it is again. It's on us. We are not to let sin be the dominating influence in our lives to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So it has to do with that word picture of not putting yourself in a place where you can be easily compromised. Don't put yourself in a position that would allow you to be enticed into activities or even thoughts that have no business being in the mind and heart of a Christian. The scriptures are clear. Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's not talking about not feeding yourself. It's not talking about getting proper sleep. It's not talking about having a certain amount of exercise. It's talking about make no provision for the flesh that leads to sinfulness, for those sinful enticements that destroy lives, not cause lives to flourish. Don't give sin and, and the flesh any chance to successfully invade your life. You know, are there websites and social media feeds that cause you to stumble? Stay away from them. Eliminate them from your phone. Are there people who in, whose influence consistently tempts you to compromise your walk and your talk? You know, are, are they people that do nothing but, but are mockers or that are gossips or that are foolish talkers? I mean, we need to consistently remove ourselves from that kind of influence if that is a, a big influence in our lives. Have you been freed from sinful habits that used to have a hold on you? Then don't put yourself in a position that would allow that temptation to ever return. You know, it's kind of like an alcoholic. An alcoholic is delivered from alcoholism. It's a fool errand for him to continue to go to bars because it's only a matter of time before he's going to fall. It's just using, if you will, street smarts here. There's, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing uh, at the PhD level here that we're talking about. This is just practical living out our lives in a fallen world. And God has given us not only the truth to live by, but he's given us the power to do it. And he's along for the ride with us. He is in us, working to will and to do of his good pleasure. And when we don't, we are resisting that will of his in our lives. So God has purchased us with the precious blood of his son, the Lord Jesus. He's purchased us and placed us in Christ to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? We know that from Ephesians 1. But he's not done so in order for, for us to live any old way that we want. We're free, but we're not free without borders or obligations. He wants us to live joy-filled and victorious lives that bring glory to his name. And that's a fulfillment 
of what the chief end of man is, isn't it? Sam and I were talking about it last week. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I mean, if you needed a statement to guide your life, there it is, in a nutshell. And he's given us, each of us, who have trusted in Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit, who enables and empowers us to live that victorious life in a way that brings honor to the God who saved us. He's equipped us with everything we need for life and godliness, so we have no excuses in that end either. So therefore, having been made debtors to God for this immense generosity, my prayer is that we would respond by committing ourselves from this moment to wage the war needed to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to destroy them by the very power of the Spirit who indwells us. It's the very thing we've been commanded by our Lord to do, and it's the very thing that we can do to bring glory to God and true enjoyment to our lives every single day. Because we know that sin destroys joy, but obedience and holiness and a life that honors God, that's where true joy is found. Father, we praise you for your word. And that, Lord, again, you have not left us without counsel. You have not left us without command. You've called us to a life that is above the fray, Lord, that is set apart from all that is wrong in this world because you are working in redemptive history, Lord, to bring all of this to a place where everything will be restored. You've already made us new creatures in Christ by the work of the new birth, and now you are at work sanctifying us into the image of the Savior or the very one that we commit our lives to. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, Lord, you would continue to work in us a boldness to take on this war daily, to kill the things, Lord, of the, of the body, Lord, that we still allow ourselves to be involved in that are, are, are in opposition to your will, that are contrary to your word. And I pray you would help us daily to have daily victory over them so that we might be in closer union with you, Lord, in our fellowship and closer fellowship with your with your people, your blood-purchased family, the church, and that we might be increasingly equipped to do the work of the, of the ministry, Lord, that you've called us to do while we have our time here. So we commit all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.